This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about big legal issues and how they affect you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am thrilled to say we are joined by John Fritzy. He has covered politics for nearly two decades and is now the Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today, with stops along the way in Albany, Indianapolis, Baltimore, and the occasional trout stream. <laughs> John, I'm glad you pull that off my bio. Thank you. I did. I we do nothing except uh, we are good at research. So <laughs> so welcome, John. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you. And there's so much that we could talk about, but what I'd like to cover today is the Supreme Court and ethics. And I know you've written about this. It's something that my students ask me about. Reporters ask me about. And there have been some ethical, we could term them scandals, we could term them kerfuffles, but there have been some ethical issues facing this court. And the first thing that I hope you can do for our listeners is just bring us all up to speed. So number one, I think when people hear ethical issues in the Supreme Court, maybe there's one justice who they think about, and that is Justice Clarence Thomas. Can you remind us what the latest and greatest kind of accusations and issues facing the justice are right now? Yeah, Thomas really has been at the center of this. Before we get to the latest, though, let me just back up and make the point that I think in this current moment, we're all thinking about the latest starting in April uh, of this year, which is when ProPublica put out this uh, pretty stunning report documenting these lavish trips and private jet travel and so forth. But, you know, I, I keep coming back to this idea that you know, a lot of these allegations aren't new. And in fact, uh, you mentioned uh, David Savage, uh, one of your former guests here. You know, he had a piece in 2004 raising uh, some of these issues, uh, some of these gifts from Harlan Crow, this GOP mega donor to Thomas. 2011, the New York Times had a big piece, a big takeout looking at the headline was something to the effect of, you know, a friendship between a justice and a magnate. And what sort of ethics issues does that raise? And the magnate at issue in that piece was Harlan Crow. So, you know, I think we have more detail. And I don't say all this to take away from the very fine reporting by ProPublica, but more to raise the point that like this has been going on for a long time. And I don't know what's in all of the justices or any of the justices' heads, but I suspect that perhaps the reason we haven't seen more from the court on this yet may be a sense that they can ride it out because they've written it out before. And uh, so then the question I think becomes, is this something different than it has been in the past. And maybe that is like the segue into what we have. So on Thomas, I mean, the big thing is this travel, right? This private jet travel. There's a trip to Indonesia paid for by Harlan Crow to a, a resort there that I think ProPublica estimated at something like half a million dollars in value. There's uh, similar trips like that that have been going on for years. I, I sort of put in a different bucket the properties. Um, there is also a report that Harlan Crow purchased three 
three properties that were owned by Thomas and family members, including one where the justice's mother still lives. These were transactions that were not reported uh, anywhere until very recently. And then there's like another bucket that's got a bunch of other stuff into it, such as Harlan Crow paying for the tuition for a grandnephew for several years at $6,000 a month. Exactly how long is unclear. A bunch of stuff, of course, with Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, and money. You know, really interesting piece in the Washington Post about how conservative uh, legal leaders like Leonard Leo uh, are directing payments to Thomas's wife. There's just a lot sort of swirling around uh, Justice Thomas, as as you note, and uh, he's got explanations for all of this stuff. But I think, you know, the question is, is it different? And I think it does feel different in this moment. It feels different to me, too. And John, I appreciate that you broaden this out a bit, right? We didn't suddenly receive accusations concerning Justice Thomas and his behavior. This has been going on for quite a while. And I appreciate that you gave David Savage his due. He reported on this a long time ago. And one question I want to ask you, maybe it feels obvious, you talked about the buckets. And I think that's right. That's kind of how I think about them too. When it comes to Justice Thomas, and again, I think what this all boils down to is he somehow compromised in his decision making. And the questions involve travel and People funding his travel, obviously, like Republican mega donor Harlan Crow, the properties, the tuition that was paid for his grandnephew, and then activities surrounding his wife, Ginny Thomas. Could you explain for the audience, do you think one is more problematic than the other? I know they're separate, but do you see one as raising different and unique concerns, particularly for Justice Thomas's ability to serve as a Supreme Court justice? Well, I think there's like legal issues there and then public perception issues. The travel is what's caught everybody's attention, right? As a Supreme Court reporter, it's a challenge to explain qualified immunity to readers or Purcell principle or or what have you, or even Chevron doctrine this term, right? That is an effort, right? I have to sort of give readers a little bit of a law lecture without putting them to sleep. Super important, and it's what we do, and and I love doing it, but you don't have to explain this travel stuff to anybody, right? It's very clear. And I think, you know, the argument against it that critics raise is a couple of fold. One is it's outside of the norm of um, other government employees. I also think it's more than that. I mean, I maybe it's because I'm a journalist and we try to be sensitive to ethical concerns. And I th- have a sense that for a lot of Americans, anybody who's in procurement or contracting or whatever is like aware, I hope they are, aware of these ethical concerns. And, and if that's true, then I think it's really easy for a lot of people to identify this and, and be like, what what are we doing here? What's going on? So I think in terms of a public perception and ease of grasping it, the travel is is really significant. I think legally, I've, I've sort of been more interested in the property transactions, I think. Yeah. The, so the justices, of course, have this out on the private jet travel, which is this hospitality exception. And there's some murkiness, at least in my mind, about, okay, um, it seems like they all sort of agreed that private Private jets amounted to hospitality and were exempted from reporting. So fine. Uh, that, of course, has since been changed. And that's why you see Thomas 
now reporting the most recent private jet travels last year paid for by Harlan Crone. We'll see what other justices do with that. The property is a little different. It's not clear to me what the exception was or what the reason was for him not putting that on the report. Now, his argument is that they put a lot of money into the property so that the sale price, which was, I think, something like a hundred and something thousand, somewhere low six digits, that Thomas actually took a loss and that because it was a loss, um, therefore it didn't count as a real estate transaction. You know, that one seems to me to, you know, certainly piqued my interest perhaps more in terms of uh, whether it crossed some line on the reporting requirements. And we know there are complaints in with the judicial conference and we'll see if anything comes of that. I want to get to those complaints and whether anything comes of these efforts maybe to implement some sort of ethics reform in a moment. But just to keep our listeners up to speed, when you're talking about these reports and exemptions, we're talking about disclosure reports that the Supreme Court justices have to file. The idea being that they are public servants, and they have to provide us with some information about their finances, in part to act as a deterrent against bad behavior, in part to act for an information purpose. So we can look at the justices and make some assessments about their background, let's say. Now, we've spent some time on Justice Thomas. We could spend more time on him. But he's not alone in facing questions, particularly about travel. I'm wondering if you could tell us briefly about the questions involving Justice Alito and whether you think they are of the same kind of breadth and depth as those facing Justice Thomas. Yeah, I mean, the main thing against Alito, I think the thing that's in everybody's mind is a a recent ProPublica piece looking at, um, I believe, a trip in 2008 that the justice took uh, that was paid for by Paul Singer, who's a hedge fund billionaire. This was also a a private jet trip. And so that is, you know, it's similar to, to some of the stuff we've seen with Thomas just on a lesser scale. The other thing about Alito that, you know, it's as I was thinking about this conversation, and I had to actually go back and look at stuff because there's so much stuff uh, and it's a little hard to keep track of. There was also, you know, not so long ago with Alito, this issue of a former opponent of abortion, a reverend who found out uh, through a donor who had dinner with Alito and his wife claims to have found out the outcome of the Hobby Lobby case. And of course, Alito has denied this Uh, strenuously. And it's a little unclear, you know, if they were talking about based on the argument or whatever. But uh, certainly the implication was that Alito had let slip the way Hobby Lobby was going to go. And that story opened up a whole bunch of questions about these advocacy groups and how they are trying to influence the court. And in this case, the group was uh, soliciting donations to go to the Supreme Court Historical Society. And so that was uh, pretty eye-opening to me anyway, as a relatively new person on the beat. I think that, you know, Alito, again, was maybe a little tangential in that case, but really opened up, I think, some insight into how groups are trying to influence the court. And I think it raises some questions about how coordinated this and, and how many people are involved in trying to influence influence the court. Oh, by the way, I mean, Alito, I mean, I think Alito made the same argument, I believe, on the jet. The other thing that keep in mind about Alito, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, is, you know, there were some actual cases involving this guy, Paul Singer, before the court. Now, he wasn't a name plain 
plaintiff in most of them. And I think there was one where he was, but it was a search stage case. But this is a little different than Harlan Crow because the argument with Crow, as you know, has always been, well, look, he didn't have cases before the court, right? right? So, you know, not who cares, but it's not as significant as a potential conflict. In this case, Singer and entities tied to him did have cases before the court. And so it sort of, I think, a little bit undermines that argument. I think that you're absolutely right to point out that there is something different about receiving travel funds and the invitations to travel and paid for private jets and hotels and resorts, et cetera, from somebody who is a large donor to political causes versus somebody who has actually almost and or taken part in certain cases before the court. That seems to me to be truly separate and apart. John, you mentioned something that I really want to follow up on, even though I know our time is limited, which is this network of groups seeking to influence the Supreme Court. And you said it raises some interesting questions. And I agree, it raises many, many questions. Are there some answers that we're starting to see? And of course, we're talking about essentially advocacy groups, some nonprofit groups, who feel very strongly about a variety of different issues. Uh, Some of them are liberal groups, some of them are conservative groups. But can you talk to us for a minute about what do we mean by trying to influence the court? Well, that's a good question. And I think that's a little unclear to me. I mean, I think one thing that uh, if you listen to uh, Senator Whitehouse, for instance, on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, he has really been on a kick about who's behind amicus briefs. And what's clear at the very least is that there are these public policy litigation firms whose funding is uncertain. You know what I mean? To be fair, I think that you see these on both sides of the aisle. So this isn't strictly a conservative thing. But that these groups are both bringing cases and having a lot of success on the conservative side lately and filing amicus briefs. And then the funding of those groups is unclear. But you know, then you also have this money coming into things like the Historical Society or money coming in to fund private jet trips. And I just think it raises you know, the question of sort of, is there this web of money uh, circling around the court and what impact it's having? It's not clear to me. You know, I mean, I think the strongest argument, I guess, for Thomas, I've always thought is that, you know, he's a conservative and has been for a long time. If you were trying to influence the Supreme Court, trying to influence an opinion, I'm not sure Thomas is the first guy to go to, right? Like if he took a position that wasn't conservative or that was somehow moderated or different, that would be eye-opening, right? So the fact that he is coming down on the conservative side and all these opinions is not really a surprise to anybody. So, you know, I think that is a strong counter argument, but I think, gosh, there's an awful lot of smoke around it. And I think it's clearly the public is noticing it and questioning it. And I think the court's poll numbers reflect that there's there's a good deal of concern about it, too. Now, John, I think you make a really good point about Justice Thomas. And to me, this brings up an existential question about ethical concerns when it comes to justices, which is essentially, are we only concerned if we think that they change their vote or they wrote an opinion in a way that they otherwise wouldn't? Or are we concerned just separate and apart from that in the sense that they are influenced by large donors, that they are part of a maybe political movement that feels to us to be distasteful and or should be separated from a legal movement? I mean, this is really a question I have, which is, 
Let's imagine that Justice Thomas has not changed a single position on a single case as a result of accepting travel expenses and assistance with property and assistance for his grandnephew's tuition. You know, is that still an ethical consideration? I mean, is that something where we need to look at Supreme Court justices as subject to a higher standard where the only question isn't, did you change a vote? And the question is, maybe should you be separated from that kind of influence? Right. I think it's a good question. And certainly as supporters would point to the vote, right? As supporters would make the argument I just laid out about he's not being influenced because he's a conservative and, and always has been. Critics might point out, first of all, look, that's not how it works at any other level of government, right? Also, with Justice Thomas, it's one thing, but it's harder to assess maybe with some of these other folks, right? What if you had a swing vote? Uh, So it seems to me like it's better just to avoid the appearance of impropriety. Well, and that's actually what judicial recusal statutes require, right? Which is, would it look to people like you're not making a fair decision, like you're not impartial? That judicial recusal statutes understand that you don't have to prove there's an actual conflict. You can prove that there's an appearance problem. And I think that feeds into something else you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on, which is the Supreme Court's poll numbers are not great. They would not be reelected if they were standing for elections, which of course they aren't. And in many, many ways, I'm glad that they aren't. But as we move into our last kind of bucket of questions about an ethics code, I wanted to ask you as somebody who follows the court very closely for all of us, do you think that the court in its decisions of which cases to take and maybe how cases come out that they're very much aware of those poll numbers. That's been a question I've had as long as I've covered this beat, right? Like, I think it's this tension between the institutional faith in the court and the significance and power that the court derives from that institutional faith versus it's especially this chief justice's effort to try to keep the court out of politics. And I think in some ways, those two things are incongruent, right? Like if you're not thinking about the political tenor of a term, um, then yeah, you, you might take a case that you wouldn't normally case, right? I think that you look at the Mifepristone case that's uh, percolating right now, right? Like, does the court really want to take another abortion case so close to Dobbs? And I guess there are legal arguments for why are we not, you know, the case hasn't percolated yet and the the law is unsettled and what have you. But I also suspect there are not political reasons in the partisan political sense, but just in the sort of perception of the court uh, reasons why they might be hesitant or might at least think about um, how they fill out their docket for the term. I don't know about deciding the case, but I, I think that yeah, like what they pick is really critical. And obviously, as, as you know, it sort of sets the tone for the rest of the term. My theme for last term, even though I know some people will disagree with me because the affirmative action decision was obviously huge and there were other big decisions involving environmental protection, but my theme was the court didn't go nearly as big as they could have. If you think about voting rights, if you think about redistricting and the independent legislature doctrine and social media, there are so many ways where the court just felt like they pulled back. And I don't know if that's based on their understanding that in part their poll numbers are floundering. And of course, all they have is our respect. They don't have a military to enforce their decisions. They live and die on the idea that we think they're still legitimate. And only because time is limited, I think that brings us to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is we talked about the scandals and questions 
what are the current ethical rules, very, very broadly, that apply to the Supreme Court justices? Because I've always said some version of they have to file disclosure reports, and John, you and I have talked about those, just like anybody else, but that every member of the federal bench is subject to certain judicial rules regarding ethics, except nine. And those are the nine members of the Supreme Court. And for them, the ethical rules are largely voluntary, not mandatory. Is that a fair assessment in that the disclosure rules are required, but everything else, for instance, when it comes to recusal, that's all voluntary? Yeah, that's right. So a couple of things about that. One is that's their argument that it's voluntary, the disclosure, and that they're following the code of conduct voluntarily. So that's that's their argument. The only thing that I guess you could say that is clear is the law, right? And I think you cited the statute earlier or something to say with recusal and any proceeding in which impartiality might reasonably be questioned, of course, whatever that means, right? And I think what is clear, you know, to sort of stick up for them for a minute, a couple of points. One is you know, traditionally, this has been handled by the justice, right? So unlike other branches, or even the lower courts, uh, which can get some guidance on this stuff and have a code of ethics, it really seems like the justices are kind of flying in the dark. Um, I mean, they have they know what to do. But it's not clear that you look at what Thomas said when this story first broke on ProPublica. And his argument was, well, look, I consulted with my colleagues. And this is kind of how I interpret it as always having been done. Gosh, I'm not a lawyer. But that's that seems like a little thin for a for the a legal standard. So I think that one, they do it voluntarily Two, they do it independently. You know, they're making these decisions basically on their own nine separate law firms. And, you know, I think you know, in terms of the code, you know, Robert says things like they're going to, you know, adhere to the highest ethical standards, but you know, it's not clear what that means. It's a little unclear to me how you craft a code of ethics that's effective. The judicial, the lower courts, you know, it's equally sort of fuzzy language to me, you know, should maintain and enforce high standards, right? Not allow financial uh, relationships to influence judicial conduct or judgment. I mean, I, you know, that's a hard thing to be specific about. Uh, also, I think that the justices, in as much as they've talked about this publicly, which is very little, I mean, I think there is this question of enforcement, right? And how exactly do you enforce this? The one thing they have said publicly is that, look, you know, on recusal, it's it's different, right? If they if they recuse out, then it's not like somebody can come in and and fill in for them, like can happen in the lower courts. So that seems to me to be a a legitimate concern. I don't quite know how you resolve that. I really appreciate that you pointed out that this is not just snapping our fingers and saying, okay, the code of ethics applies to the Supreme Court, we're done here. There are a lot of legal and practical issues involved. So it's interesting, you said, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts says, okay, here's the code of ethics. I know there have been pushes also from the legislative branch to try and impose certain ethical constraints on the Supreme Court justices. And I just want to highlight that I think we're saying the same thing in terms of the question. So big question number one is who enforces it? Because they're called the Supreme Court for a reason, right? There, There's nobody above them. So who is the one who says, no, you're not following it? I mean, do they have to police themselves? Because we can think of all the reasons why that would be awkward and bad for the internal workings of the court. And then if this doesn't come from Roberts, if it comes from the legislative branch, for instance, I think there are some real separation of powers concerns. I'm not sure that the legislative branch really can and or should say to the 
top of the judicial branch, here's how things are going to go, even with respect to how they conduct themselves when it comes to ethical issues. Are those the two big roadblocks and or thresholds that you also see that kind of practical who's going to enforce it? And then the legal, if it doesn't come from the judicial branch, well, who is another branch to tell us what to do? Right. Well, certainly Roberts has made that argument. And I think what's interesting is that we've had, I think, four justices speak out publicly over the summer on ethics. Roberts, in sort of an offhanded way at the end of an address in D.C. toward the end of the term. Alito, of course, in the infamous uh, Wall Street Journal op-eds, which have been highly debated on both sides and so forth. Maybe Kagan is the most interesting because she is, I think, wrestling with these issues and seems to be pushing back on Alito and this idea that Congress has no control over the courts. Of course, you know, Congress, you know, gave them uh, free range in the docket, and Congress has done all sorts of things to regulate the Supreme Court and the executive branch. So the idea that they have no control seems a, a little far-fetched to me. But uh, I think Kagan, you know, chooses her words very carefully to say, well, I don't know if they can do a code of ethics, right? Because that's, maybe that starts getting into cases and recusals, and, and that, that might be sort of outside of their uh, purview a little bit. Oh, and the fourth justice was, uh, of course, Kavanaugh, who got everybody's hopes up that maybe something was coming uh, soon, uh, and had talked about his hope that the court would take concrete steps, were his words. Uh, but that hasn't happened, at least not yet. So you mentioned, you know, these two buckets, sort of the practical and the legal. I think the third is political, right? Like, it is true right. that on the Hill, you know, you've got Senate Democrats advancing a bill. And it's also the case that this used to be a bipartisan issue, at least to some extent. There was some Republican support for ethics. But then we had Dobbs. And, you know, now, I think in large part because of that and the the backlash to that and consternation over that case, now any sort of move at ethics can be waved away by Republicans on the Hill as an effort to undermine a conservative Supreme Court. And so, you know, the issue of ethics has been wrapped up in abortion and, and guns and these other high profile controversial cases. And what it means is that there's just no there's just no likelihood of anything happening on the Hill. And I think Roberts and the other members of the conference are, I'm sure, acutely aware of that and aware of sort of the political dynamics here. And, you know, it's worth noting, we talked about the polls. I just want to circle back to this. Something like nearly 50% of Republicans still have faith in the Supreme Court and something like 15% of Democrats do. So, you know, in as much as they care about the polls and look at them, I'm sure they would say they don't care about and don't look at them. And they probably, you know, institutionally, it's not their role to be looking at the polls. But um, there is a partisan divide there, too. And I think, you know, that inf- certainly informs the debate, if not their their decision making. Well, and the partisan debate, I think, it's very difficult to disentangle that from the fact that this is a conservative court. And so a lot of people don't enjoy their decisions. And sometimes that becomes linked with questions about their ethics. But of course, I think as we've discussed, or at least in my view, those are separate issues. Now, John, as we close out, just because I'm so happy to have you here, and I can't let you go without asking, what should we be looking for next term? Just some big high level things that you hope listeners will key into. There are some big cases, big cases dealing with gun control, for instance. What are some of the cases that you're following that we should start thinking about as the term is about to begin in about two and a half weeks? 
So Gonz is, is the one that, of course, my readership is super interested in. And this uh, Rahimi case is a really fascinating case um, for a lot of reasons. It involves a uh, federal prohibition on gun ownership um, for individuals who have certain domestic violence orders uh, lodged against them. And so uh, this is a fascinating case to me because just two terms ago, we got this decision in Bruin where the court said, look, you know, you have to analyze this stuff based on historical record, you know. Is there some uh, is there some analogous prohibition from the founding era uh, involving guns? And if there's not, well, maybe you need to toss this gun regulation. And you know, in the founding era, there was not some regulation against guns uh, explicitly for domestic abusers. But I think probably uh, almost everybody can agree. In fact, even the NRA has been very silent in this case. Almost everybody can agree that people with domestic abuse problems should not uh, have access to guns. And so, you know, I, I think it a little bit puts the, the court in a knot, um, the conservatives in a knot, at least in terms of how to do how to explain if they decide to uphold this law, how they explain it uh, vis-a-vis their decision in Bruin. Um, it's also worth noting that this same statute, of course, uh, has all, all all other sorts of prohibitions, one of which is prohibition against owning a gun while uh, using drugs. And that is a charge that uh, has been filed against Hunter Biden, the president's son. And so I think there's some real interesting question about if this statute is struck down, what that means for the other parts of this uh, Section 922 in the law. So uh, guns is sort of always on its own. Um, there's some bump stock lit- litigation that's going to come up too. So um, so that's an interesting bucket. I think administrative state is another bucket, uh, administrative law, and uh, the big case there being uh, the Loper Bright case. This is mm-hmm. a case involving some herring fishermen who Commerce Department promulgated a rule that basically uh, required them to bring on board an observer and whose salary they paid. And um, that's not in the statute. And these guys are suing, trying to throw out agency deference, the so-called called Chevron Doctrine Deference. And so that case, uh, and there's a few other really interesting administrative law cases out there uh, that could really reshape how the government is able to regulate the environment or our next response to the next pandemic and so forth. Just one last bucket that I think is super interesting is social media. You know, we saw some of this with the Section 230 case last year, but this year, I think it's even more interesting. You've got these cases about whether public officials, when they ban people on Twitter or X or Facebook, whether they're uh, state actors and triggering First Amendment protections. In other words, to really boil it down, are they violating the First Amendment when they ban voters, uh, when they block uh, voters on their social media? That case has already been granted. You've got the big cases out of Texas and Florida about whether uh, states can uh, regulate content on social media. Those are pending at search stage, but I think the, everybody wants the court to take them, and so I think they probably will. The Biden administration has asked the court to take them. So that's going to be a huge blockbuster. And then you've also got this uh, applications docket case out of Missouri dealing with whether the White House or the FBI or the or the uh, Surgeon General pressured um, social media, coerced them to take content down that was inaccurate and how far an administration can go in doing that. So I think like, you know, guns is going to be a big case for the press this year. I think administrative law is going to be a big case. And I think social media, th- those may be the three big themes from for this coming term. So far, they're still taking cases, of course. Yes, that's right. I have my ongoing list. We will be talking about all of those cases throughout the term. John Fritzi of USA Today, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot and I really appreciate your time. I did too. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 